everyone. Welcome to the Natasha Crane podcast. Well, I know I am a bit overdue in releasing a new episode, but if you're a parent or grandparent, this episode will be well worth the wait. Let me give you a little backdrop to what we're doing today. In June, I started what was going to be a three-part series on educational choices for Christian families. So the first episode was episode 26 of this podcast called Public, Private, or Homeschool, Thinking Through Your Child's Education, Part 1. In that episode, I talked about several principles that every parent should consider when thinking through their child's education. And then I shared all my thoughts on homeschooling in particular based on my own experience and research. So if you're interested in the subject of education, you need to go back and listen to that first episode before this one, because the foundational principles that I laid out there are really important when it comes to the public school subject, and I'm not going to repeat them in this episode. So I will put a link to that one in the show notes if you haven't already heard it. Then in August, I did a part two to this series called Christian Private Schools, What Parents Should Know. And in that one, I really just tried to help anyone who's considering private school or currently has kids in private school by talking about, again, our experiences and the research that I've done on that subject. So if that's something that you're considering, be sure to check that one out as well. Well, today I am thrilled, really thrilled to say that I'm finally arriving at the last episode in the series, this one being on public school, what Christian parents must know. And I have been hearing from lots of you over the last several weeks asking, hey, when is that last part going to come out? I have so many questions about public school. I know there's a lot of interest in it, but one of the reasons that it has taken me a long time to get to this episode in particular is that I wanted to bring in someone who has a really deep knowledge of public education, which my guest today does. He is a Christian who was also a principal in public high schools for the last 19 years. He has a wealth of inside knowledge on the public school system from a Christian perspective. I I can't wait for this conversation. I know it's going to be helpful to people, and I'm going to introduce you to him in a minute. But first, I want to share with you that today's episode is sponsored by Summit Ministries. Summit Ministries Student Conferences are two-week sessions held in Colorado and Georgia each summer that give 16 to 22-year-old students reasons to trust the biblical foundation that you have laid for them. Students have the opportunity to wrestle through the hard questions of their faith with world-class speakers like Sean McDowell and Greg Kogel, Jay Warner Wallace, Frank Turek, John Stone Street, and many more. If you've not been able to do a lot of apologetics and worldview teaching with your kids, this is the perfect opportunity to give them a deep dive. And you know what? Even if you have, this is the perfect opportunity for your kids to hear it from someone else because at this age, that's really important. And in fact, that's why I'm sending my own kids this summer. I can't wait for them to have this experience. So registration is opening very soon for summer 2024, and they're offering listeners of this podcast a $200 discount if they use code Natasha 200. Should be easy to remember. Natasha 200. Financial assistance is also available to those in need. So go today to summit.org slash Natasha. Summit.org slash Natasha, where you can click the button that says, be the first to know. Fill that form out and they'll let you know as soon as you can register. 
My guest today is Andy White, and I have to tell you guys, he has just been so incredibly helpful in preparing for this episode. I really didn't know much about the public education system myself before he and I started exchanging emails and documents this summer, but he put together pages upon pages of information for me over months now. I'm telling you, it has been a long process so that I could have a better understanding of everything in order to even put this interview together and hit on the right subject. So, Andy, first of all, thank you. This is an amazing amount of of energy that you have poured into today's project. This episode has been a long time in coming, but welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Natasha. I feel really honored to be here. Love your content, your ministry, um, and and listen listen to all your podcasts, but uh, very humbled by the experience. You know, the, the thing that I think that plays into this is not only did I have 30 plus years of experience in public education in a variety of different positions. But uh, listening to your two first podcasts about your own personal experience, I too have a family, adult children. Uh, they were kind of spread out in the educational experiences. I had uh, one that was a career tech kid, uh, two others that were college kids, and one of those three that went through some private Christian school that was kind of like your committed traditional Christian school that you described. So I've got a little bit of flavor of what you're experiencing as well. So I can identify with your audience. Uh, I don't have all the answers, but maybe I have some insights that will be helpful. Well, I know you will have a tremendous amount of insight just based on what I've already seen together. I've really been excited about recording this episode because so many people really have questions about public education. And I know that I am not the content expert on this, but you have many years of experience. Like I said earlier, 19 years being a principal. But tell us, uh, what else should we know in order to have some context for the experience that you're bringing today? You just gave us a little snippet, but is there anything else we should know? You sent me a long, impressive resume, but what are the (laughs) points that you would take out of that and say, hey, here's where I'm coming from today. Well, I I think that I think what gives me some uniqueness is I am a Midwestern kid. So from the Dayton area um, and uh, born and bred uh, in the Buckeye State. But uh, I've had a lot of experiences in both rural, small, uh, suburban median. I've had some inner city. I've had large suburban. I've been in a career tech uh, environment. Uh, I've been a teacher. I've been a coach and advisor. I've been an administrator. I've been a lead principal as well as an assistant principal. I've been at districts that you would say were maybe uh, challenging on a variety of levels. And I've been in other districts that have been very high functioning. So I've been across a a wide swath and continuum of different levels and qualities of experience. So I think along with personal experience with your own children, uh, as well as professional experience, I think I bring possibly some insight that might be helpful to parents in making these critical choices. Absolutely. And that, that's very helpful. And as I mentioned earlier, also, you're a Christian. And so you're yeah, coming yeah. at this having been in a public education system, but also seeing it through the, the eyes of being a Christian in, in those roles. And so I think that that makes for a really unique opportunity to have this conversation. Well, we've got so much that we want to cover today. I have no idea how long this episode is <laughs> going to be, but we're going to do it all because we know how important this is to a lot of parents. I'm anxious to get started, but I do feel the need to preface this conversation with two two important statements. Number one, nothing we're going to say here to parents of public school kids is going to tell you that you necessarily need to choose something else. I know a lot of parents get really concerned about this and they say, you know what, I have no other choices. This is where I am. And I just want to say, I see you. As I said in the first part of this series, in in episode one of this, every family is different. 
But that said, every Christian also has to not be blind to the fact that our educational choice will inevitably impact our kids' worldview. And we have to be realistic in saying that if your kids are in the public schools, there are many things to be concerned about. So this episode is not here to say, hey, get out of the public schools. You might have some concerns that lead you to make that choice, but that's not the purpose here. We are here to help you understand what to be concerned with when everyone's saying, oh, public schools, this and that. Well, what exactly is it we need to be concerned with? And then importantly, what you can do if you're a public school parent. The second thing is that I want you to understand public school concerns go far beyond the influence of non-Christian peers and sex ed materials. And I say that because these are really the things that get talked about the most in these conversations, I think, and yet they barely scratch the surface of what you should really be concerned with. So yes, you're going to be faced with the the influence of secular peers, and yes, you are going to have some interesting things and, and unfortunate things happen in these sex ed classes, but it's really the nature of the entire education that you're children are getting that we're focusing on today. And so that's what we want to help you understand is how all of these unbiblical worldviews fall into your kids' experience as they go through the educational process. So Andy, in everything that you shared with me leading up to this show, it was very clear that the public education structure in the U.S. is really complex and multi-layered, And there is truly a lot that parents have to get our heads around if we want to understand this. I know that that is absolutely the case for me. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so glad to have you on the show, to bring some clarity to those layers and help us understand who is responsible for what and where. So what we're going to spend a lot of time on to begin with is understanding those structures from the federal to the state to the local levels. And to be clear for listeners, this isn't just for the purpose of educating you about education in general, as if it's just kind of this mild intellectual interest. We specifically want to understand the structures because if you want to know where concerns are coming into public schools and what you can do, which is our purpose here, you have to understand how public education is structured in the first place. So that is why we're walking through this. Keep that in mind as we're going through all of these levels. There is a reason for this conversation. So with that in mind, let's start at the highest level, the federal level, talking about at the entire country level. What are some of the main responsibilities of the Federal Department of Education, Andy, in particular, the ones that will eventually have impact all the way down to what kids are learning in the classroom? Well, it won't be surprising. There's about three or four areas that school districts uh, at the state level, uh, the Departments of Education at the state, uh, they're interested in. And the the non-surprise is follow the money. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is the federal monies that are usually in block, categorical, or formula grants. Most most of those that maybe parents have heard of are block grants. Um, Those are divvied out to states on a variety of different uh, cases and situations, circumstances. Also, states apply for them. Some are are granted to them. then uh, there are other grants that come that are that come through individual school districts that where you have to apply. And school districts sometimes they have grant writers in house, or they'll subcontract those out. And you can go after federal monies based on category, based on qualification as an individual school district. So uh, it's coming through the state uh, via the federal government, or it's coming through the individual school district. Sometimes it goes through the educational service centers that are regional or countywide. Those, those as well can apply for those on an individual basis. The other uh, duty of the federal government 
is um, basically they um, when you have a new president um, regime that comes in or occasional updates and reissuing of recommendations or advisements, a lot of it comes through the Department of Justice, sometimes through Homeland Security on the safety and health side. Um, but they will give recommendations. A lot of those can be linked to political ideologies and uh, priorities within parties, whether it be at the federal or the state levels. And those are there are lobbying groups behind those things. They do have impact. The other is uh, a review of current or pending statute. Uh, that can be uh, some of the famous acts that have already uh, that are in place, like the Civil Rights Act of '64 or the uh, IEPs or No Child Left Behind, uh, they, uh, they intermittently review those, they uh, update those, they, um, and revise those, and that has to go through Congress and be, and, and be voted on and approved. Uh, the final thing is something that parents are probably familiar with, which is FAFSA, which is uh, where you fill out applications, uh, you know, schools help in that process, uh, departments of education help that. And that allows for qualification for federal aid for students that are going to post-secondary. So those are the three or four areas that, uh, particularly the last one, most f- uh, folks are probably familiar with. Okay. So um, I know that I've heard a lot of people, especially in Christian circles, make comments about federal education, the Department of Education, where they're just saying, we just need to get rid of the Federal Department of Education. It sounds like from what you're saying here, most of the influence is coming through the money that gets passed down and who yes. gets the money. What is there something in particular that is driving that conversation? I'm just curious about, you know, abolishing the Federal Department of Education. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's a great question. And that that is, that's, talk at the local level just as much maybe at the national level. It, it does go on among administrators, teachers, uh, and influencers. Um, the Department of Education, the federal government, um, the monies, you have to, as you, as you go backwards and look at where uh, when Congress per year and their budget uh, divvies out the monies in block form or category or formula form, um, there's political motivations and priorities behind those, no doubt. And so some are standard and they've been in place through multiple different administrations. But there are others where they, like, for example, in COVID, there were a lot of safety and health uh, block grants uh, that were um, given to the states or that you could individually apply for. Uh, and sometimes the individual school districts, the uh, uh, the um, educational service centers would apply for a grant. And then the individual districts that were belonging to those uh, educational service centers would apply through the educational service center. So you had multi-layer ways of applying for this at the local level. But COVID was an example where you had a, a high frequency and a high amount of dollar value uh, in services and monies that were targeted categorically for safety, health purposes. Uh, Other things are for other priorities, and those can be across the political spectrum. And so you can, it's not hard to imagine that per administration, there are certain priorities based on ideology, what's going to be emphasized and what is not. 
Okay, so that that's helpful. And, and then the federal government, there's no requirement, it sounds like, that you have to give every state the same amount. So it would come no. down to maybe some personal preferences of administrations or of what the, the current prevailing ideology is, that maybe some state gets a certain amount, other state does not based on that preference. Is that is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. There's lobbying that goes on behind the scenes, as we know, just for about for everything. And education has massive lobbies. So uh, senators, ha- House of Representative members are constantly lobbying, dependent upon if they're in the good graces of the current majorities in, in either house, or if they are uh, in good graces with the president's administration and the and the, the Department of Education, there's going to be lobbying behind the scenes for some of these priorities, some of these targeted categorical areas, um, and uh, that money absolutely follows that lobbying. And that's not hard to track. Okay, so just and and I didn't warn you, I was going to ask this, so you might not know off the top of your head, but I'm just curious. Before we move into the state level, do you know what percent of a state's budget for the state's education comes from federal monies versus the states? It's it's going to be somewhere seven to eight percent to about eleven percent. Okay, comes from so the federal from, government. From the federal government. Okay. So when you when you lump all the different types of grants and uh, services and goods, uh, it's it's about it varies from state to state, about seven to eleven percent. Uh, okay, but but so it's, it's a meaningful a amount, but it's not the majority. Absolutely, that is okay. correct. Well, let, let's move into the state level. And I know from our prior conversations that every state is a bit different in its structures and governance. Clearly, we're not going to go state by state right now and say, well, in New Hampshire, it's this way. I mean, that would be horrible. But there are also a lot of commonalities. So let's focus on kind of what's common to the various state levels of education. So just broadly speaking, what goes on at the state level? Who are the key actors there? And what are their roles as it relates to eventual parental concerns? Okay, well, if you go all the way back, the state constitutions, which are very individualized, they they have um, you know parts of them that deal with education, and then those are more articulated in revised code for each state. So your state, California, my state, Ohio, has revised code. Every state has that, and there are sections in the revised code that deal with education and student services. Okay, which education is a part of that. And then, of course, there's a piece with the legislature, which legislatures is, uh, are constantly introducing bills that impact education on a variety of different levels, all and including higher education, because that's particularly that's publicly funded as well. And then you have the governor's office, because the Department of Education for each state falls under the executive branch. So the governor, and again, varying degrees by state and authority, the governor has authority over the Department of Education for each state. And then, of course, you have state boards of education. And again, they have different, you know, varying structures based on um, uh, each state uh, as far as the authority the governor welds, the authority that the state board welds, the amount of members, if they're appointed or elected, or there's a hybrid version, which Ohio has a hybrid version. There's some elected, some that are appointed by the governor. And of course, that reflects, again, priorities, ideologies, political interests of the government, you know, of the governors uh, and the also legislative branch, the uh, party that's in power. And then finally, you have uh, the state board of education um, uh, superintendent, which sometimes he's uh, elected by the state board of education. Sometimes he's appointed by the governor. And then, of course, the Department of Education has multiple different uh, branches 
and departments that reflect all the services that are divvied out and serve the, the individual local districts. So it looks a it has some commonality by that structure. If you looked at an org chart, most states have a similar org chart, but there's varying degrees of authority, appointing, electing, spheres of influence, um, and, and revised code, and the impact of the legislature, uh, both long-term and individual bills and uh, statutes that are introduced. So that's the basics of it. Um, and I think for the average person, they just need to know in each state, the state government has a significant amount of power over local control, and the state determines what local control looks like in their local districts per state. That's a that's a very good, succinct summary of what I know is a giant <laughs> area. It's interesting to me because hearing you say that, you know, you make it sound so easy, but there are tons of people who would be covered yes. in terms of just that small summary that you just gave, and surely we're not electing all of those people. So it, right. it, would it be fair to say that actually most of the people at the state level who have a lot of control over what's going on at the local level, we, we don't elect at all. They are appointed by either the governor or other people, a handful of people that maybe we do elect. Is that the case in most states that it is overwhelmingly managed? The educational process at the state level is overwhelmingly managed by people who are not elected. Yeah, there's distributive authority uh, in, in bureaucratic network, you know, structure. So you're exactly right. Um and I would say that the majority majority of the people in the Department of Education, like in my state, your state, those people, um, they're either appointed or they applied for a job, got a job based on their expertise and experience. And they're, uh, they're, they're serving the State Board of Education, which many of them are appointed. Some may be elected. And they're obviously taking the lead from the superintendent and then the governor's office. And then, of course, impacted by the legislature. So with so many people who are appointed, how how much correlation is there with whoever is currently the governor? So, for example, uh, you know, in California, we are always going to have a more liberal governor because that's just the state that we're in. So if he appoints people and then he is no longer the governor and we have another governor who has a similar perspective on the world, like that person's probably going to keep the same people in place. But there are other states that kind of go back and forth, maybe. And, and so a new governor comes in, would he, if he has a different view than the prior governor, would he then be appointing a whole new set of people who would oversee education? Or are these appointments usually for a longer term so they kind of withstand the changes in governorship? Well, like I said, again, varies from state to state, but absolutely. So you have changeover in legislation or legislature. You have lobbying groups, just like we talked about at the federal government. You have lobbying groups at the state government that are representing the main interests, whether it be teachers, administration, boards of education, uh, parent interest groups, a variety of things, business, chamber of commerce, and so on, career tech. And then the when a governor comes in, it just depends on what their priorities are. Some governors may come in and their their administration is very focused on education. They're very focused on the budget, the services. Uh, maybe they want to cut. And that those cuts could go right down into the departments of education. They could cut departments, force combining of departments. And uh, and so every governor is is going to be a little different when that person comes into office and what they think is a priority for education. Uh, right now in our state, career tech is massively uh, important. Lots of money at the federal, the Perkins <clears throat> money, <clears throat> as well as the state money is being poured into career tech. Now, that's a good thing on one side, but on the other side, 
the comprehensive high schools and the non-career tech environments and the charters, <clears throat> there, there, there's trade-offs, as you said in your previous podcast, there's going to be trade-offs. And so there's a fight for a finite uh, pot of money over an infinite amount of needs. And so it's going to depend on the priorities of those governments and how involved they are in the education budgeting process and then what direction and what um, level of priorities they want to place. And our example, I'm just talking about in Ohio, career tech and Perkins money at the federal level and the state level, it's exploding right now. Uh, we don't know the trade-offs yet, but it's getting a lot of attention in our state. That's really helpful. And I and I think that it's really important for parents to hear because, and I'll emphasize this uh, probably a few more times in this episode, what I hear from parents a lot, Christian parents, you know, well-meaning Christian parents is, well, you know, I hear stuff about the public schools, but so far so good on my, you know, my local school or my, you know, my kid's fourth grade teacher. She's a Christian and she's wonderful. I hope you're listening to this and hearing how much greater of a an issue this is and how much greater of, of the concerns that we need to have that start way up at the state level. So, that, I mean, there are all these people that Andy's talking about, all these committees, all this lobbying, everything that goes on under the governorship, all of these things are going to significantly affect everything that comes down eventually. And we're going to work through all those levels. I'm just wanting to make sure we're all tracking with why this matters. If you're thinking, if you're listening to this and thinking, well, we haven't had any problems so far, or, you know, my, my our school district is pretty conservative or, or whatever, hear what he's saying at how much goes on at the state level. So, um, you know, if a parent, we, we can't go any deeper on the specifics there, but if a parent wants to understand how their individual state is structured when it comes to education, where do they go online? Like, what would you even search for? What would well, be a good search term if you're going to look for that on Google? Yeah, I, the first thing would be go to the State Department of Education. It, they do, at least in Ohio, and I've looked at other states, they generally have good tools for parents. They have parent FAQs. They uh, have diagrams and structures and org charts. And they, they you can take you can go to the depth that you want to. So I would start with your State Department of Education. You can also go to the governor's office and under it, it obviously falls under uh, the governor's office. The other thing is you can look at um, in the legislature, there's education committees on both sides of the houses in the senates and in the House of Representatives where all money, uh, money um, bills and discussions begin in your House of Representatives. And those education committees, which they post everything online, they you have the minutes, you can see the video of it. Uh, also, you can see the video in most states of the State Board of Education uh, meetings. They have their agendas. They have their minutes. So that's very helpful as well. Since COVID, that really exploded. And now people almost demand it. It's almost like a sunshine law type of thing that the people just expect it. Then the final thing I would say is there's a lot of different think tanks and a lot of different um, non-state oriented or federal oriented um, websites that deal with educational statistics uh, like Fordham, um, uh, like educational uh, data. And, and um, I'm trying to remember the acronym and I don't want to get too deep in the acronyms, but there's many of those out there. If you just Google that will give you some basics to the structures that will be very helpful. 
Okay, excellent. And I would encourage anyone listening to get familiar with your your state structures and, and understand how it is structured because that will ultimately affect a lot of things at your local level. So we're gonna we're gonna keep tracking now down to a closer to home level. We're gonna talk about the school district and local boards of education. So these are the so called school boards that periodically show up in viral videos when something crazy happens. Sometimes you see parents yelling at these, or you see parents being shut down at these. And, you know, sometimes they make the news, um, but I know probably a lot of parents are like me and that you kind of have this loose understanding that, okay, there's something called a school board that's out there and they, you know, have some power over the schools, but right. not really understanding what exactly that is. So help us understand what do school boards do and why are they so important when it comes to what is going on in your local public school? Okay. So we used a, we used a phrase earlier, local control. So once you understand the state uh, grants through the constitution, through legislation, through revised code, and through current policy, uh, a certain amount of authority by school, uh, school districts, local school districts, varies from state to state, but generally it's a lot. And so your, your board of education is elected um, community members for a certain term um, that serve, and th- they are generally a policy, strategic planning, uh, financial caretakers, and uh, political PR uh, liaison to the community. Um, so boards of education, individual board members don't have any authority. And so that's a lot of folks don't understand that. Uh, they have a title, they have a position, but boards of education, three or more, which is a quorum, they do have power and authority under the constitution and under um, revised code. So individual board members do not. But these boards are... Generally, and, and I think a lot of parents get this confused, they're not operations um, bodies. They are at the high 20,000 foot level for, again, strategic planning, financial stability and caretaking, uh, messaging and communication, and they're a pol- and politics for community, small town, and suburban politics, you know, in your community. So that's the, that is the major function for them. And they really should not be, if they're functioning efficiently, uh, getting into hiring, except for the treasurer or the superintendent, maybe the business manager, and they shouldn't be getting into daily operations or hiring of personnel or individual issues in buildings or issues with teachers or things like that. They're an overarching macro level uh, running of the of the school district. So I think it's important for for parents to hear that you're saying these are all elected people. So sometimes yes. I know we can get those those long ballots uh, come election time, <laughs> and we see the names of all kinds of people for offices across the state that we have no idea about. I know, I know that's the case for me. But it's important to know that these really important people who are responsible for overseeing, uh, as you said, policy and 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 these other things related to the community that they are elected. So this is something that you need to pay attention to because Mm -hmm. policies are obviously going to be to some degree driven by your view of what is good and what is bad. And those are worldview Mm -hmm. questions. Those are ideological questions. And so these people become very important. Make sure that you understand who's on the board and that you can vote for them. Uh, But more specifically, just to give people some ideas about the types of questions that the board would handle, what would be something that would be a school board level issue that's not a school specific issue? So a parent has this kind of problem. And what would that be that they're taking the school board instead of the school? 
Well, so for example, a school board issue might be a violation of a federal statute, like a Title IX or Title VII, Title II, or I'm sorry, Title IV. Uh, it would be a civil rights type of thing that would that would go that would rise to the school board level. Uh, safety, like an entire district safety plan or security. Uh, during COVID, that was a school board. You know, obviously superintendents were involved in that. Um, financial levies, you know, we're dealing with levies and increased revenue. That's at a school board level because they have to vote uh, recommendations by the superintendent to put something on the ballot. Um, also, uh, building funds, you know, capital outlays, purchases of land. Th- those are some examples that would be at the macro level. Uh, but they, I just want to reiterate they do not get involved in the day-to-day. That's what the administration for the building or for the teachers or support staff do. And a lot of parents, particularly small schools where people wear a lot of hats, um, boards, board members should not be involved in those as, as a good board. Whether It doesn't matter what ideology or what background you have. They should stay out of those and, and allow. And if they have issues with the administration or the people they've hired, then that's handled a different way through the superintendent and HR department. So that's just a, another plug for that in their and their uh, lane that they're supposed to be in. And I, and I think it's important that to, to realize that this is a really good example of understanding the structures of the educational system, because if you don't understand the structures, then you're going to spend your time taking some issue to the school board and trying to get through right. there that really has nothing to do with the school board, that you can more right. fruitfully have a discussion with somebody else. So, uh, But let's say that there's a parent who says, no, no, I have an issue that is specific to the school board. How do you actually raise something to the school board? And just to tack on to that, for the introverts who are out there who mm. see those videos of parents who get up <laughs> and have to address the school board under some stressful 1.5 minute time frame or something like that. Is there a way that you can mm. raise an issue with the school board without having to be the person who goes in there and is willing to, to say it all out loud? Absolutely. So school boards are elected officials. So they're, they have, um, they have a responsibility from their political position to serve their communities, just like any other uh, politician. I hate, maybe that's a, a negative connotation, but they are. And so one easy way is just an email uh, or a letter or a request to, um, uh, to speak at a school board meeting. So those are very easy. You can do public uh, records requests. Uh, any citizen as a part of a community and beyond that, like, for example, news agencies and things like that, you can you can ask for a public records request. But most people will email a board member um, just like they would email a township trustee or a council person in their in their community. They would have a concern that would probably be uh, at the at the district level or maybe even the building level, or even mean just a personal level. And um, they would ask for it to be addressed. You can come to a school board meeting. Uh, They do give time for public participation. It's usually limited. It has some parameters. Um, It's usually not as bombastic as some of the uh, things that we see out there in YouTube. It's much more uh, mundane and um, more real life at times. And so it's not really controversial. And then the other way is you could request um, to meet with the school board. You can actually request. There has to be uh, three present you know, for it to be an official meeting, but you can request that. Uh, you can talk to an individual school board meeting. You can call, meet with an individual school. But you got to remember, based on the rules and policies, they don't have any authority or power to speak for the board or any, they cannot take no action, but they can listen. So you could meet, 
talk with, email an individual board member. You could meet with two. You could meet with the entire board. Obviously, if you meet with more than two, then it becomes an official action. So those are some basic ways that people, you know, in the old-fashioned way is to write, leave a message, that type of thing on the phone. Very helpful. Thank you for that. Uh, so let's, we could talk a lot more about school boards, but I want to keep, keep moving us through here. So let's get to the superintendent. So you've got at the local school district level, you've got these boards of education and, and that's everything that you were just describing. But then there's this really important key position who is called the superintendent. And, you know, honestly, this is another one of those things where it's like, I've heard of the superintendent my whole life, but I realized as I was reading your notes about the superintendent's role, I had no idea what superintendents did exactly. So help us understand what does the school superintendent do? And how does that role matter to parents specifically? So just just think of like any organization. The superintendent is a CEO of, of an organization, okay. so of a, of, a, of a school system. So they are hired by the school board. Uh, they're hired like any other employee of the school board. They're, they're not elected in most cases. Um, they are um, hired by the school board. <clears throat> Their main job is for, there's a couple of different things. Uh, number one, they're a liaison between the school district and the board and the board and the school district. And they're also a liaison to the community. So they're the face and the voice of the school district and the board. They work for the board. OK, and they oversee the district. So think in those terms. They work for the board. They oversee the district's operations, management and, and all the rest. And so. They also are the chief um, operations officer. So that means they, uh, within conjunction with the treasurer and possibly the business manager, they manage and report uh, periodically on the budget and revenues and and also expenses. They plan uh, budgets for the year, for three years, for five years, for 10 years. They're the ones that make recommendations about budgetary issues, whether it be things that are non-levy oriented or levy oriented or building programs or capital outlays or things like that. Uh, they're involved in uh, HR. And again, this all depends on the size of your school because the smaller the school, the more jobs the superintendent has. The larger the school, there's more uh, secondary layers to the organization where you have assistant superintendents and departments. Uh, they're also in charge of <clears throat> safety and security for the school. They're the primary person for that. They're in charge of the administration of the school. And, and technically, they oversee all <clears throat> of the evaluation and performance reviews of the administration, as well as they oversee all evaluations of all the uh, members of the school, the staff of the school. So teachers, counselors, they make sure all the the evaluative processes, the evaluative protocols are in place. They're in place. They're also the number one policy implementer of any school. So they're in charge of all policies, all protocols, whether they be federal, state, or local. And then, and then the final thing is they're the prime communicator. So they are the person that rolls out initiatives, programming. Um, we talked about potential levy campaigns, uh, uh, five-year forecasts. Uh, strategic planning, things like that. They do, they're right under the board and they're their chief officer that works for them and does all these different distributive duties um, for the school district. 
So it seems like based on that description that the superintendent isn't necessarily someone that parents who have concerns about education, what's going on at the schools would be going directly to because they're Correct. the executor of the process. So if you have right. a problem that's policy oriented, that is a school board matter, or maybe it's a state matter, depending on what the issue right. is, right. or maybe there's something specific to the school, which we're going to get to in just a minute. But is that correct then that in terms of our conversation today and the topics we're talking about that the superintendent is probably not someone that the parent is going to interface with a lot because they're the executor? Right. So I, I would say on the policy end, if it's a local policy, then he would probably or she would probably be the person that the public would engage uh, because they're the, like you said, the executor of the local policy as well as state and and federal. So if it's a local policy, the individual community member or the parent or the grandparent, whomever, would probably engage the superintendent at that level. Um, and, and the superintendent would have all authority over building, you know, right down to the, the lowest policy and protocol and administrative guideline, all the way up to something that would deal with the entire district. So he would have a, he or she would have authority over that. So if it's local, I can see where a community member would go to them. But if it's state or federal, the superintendent would then direct them, help the community member to contact a legislator, contact the Department of Education. Their role would be an assistant or a helpful person that would help them navigate that process. I mean, good superintendents do that for their community because they're steeped in the internal mechanisms and structures of, of education in the state. Uh, anything beyond that, uh, it could be board-wide. Most superintendents try to deflect that. They try to take on that responsibility before. And if the parent or the community member is not happy with that conversation, then they will take it to the school board, as we've talked about, different ways. And the one thing that most superintendents want to avoid is the public um, the, the showing up and giving public testimony at a school board meeting when you've tried to engage the, the parent or the community member, uh, the board has tried to individually engage them, and then they brief to a public forum. Because they're recorded, because they're, uh, they're open to the public, um, most superintendents, most boards want to solve these problems before they become public in a, in a rational, reasonable way. Sometimes that's a, possible, sometimes it's not. So would you say to a parent listening who does have some kind of policy concern at the local level, not something that's state or federal, would you say that they should attempt first to go to the superintendent and then it would go to the board after that? Would that be the right path to go down? I would ask these questions. Number one, is this a classroom policy? Is this a building policy? Is this a district policy? Ask that question first. If you get the answer that it's a district-wide policy, it impacts not just your child, but others, and you've got other parents that are concerned about this, yes, the superintendent, um, and in larger districts, it might be an assistant superintendent in charge of certain categories, okay? That would be the person, you know, that would be the time to go there. If it's a, a policy that's closer to the building level, closer to the classroom level, then obviously you'd work down the food chain to the folks that are closer to where action and operations happen. Okay, good. So let's keep going down the food chain then. I just wanted to help people understand that the distinction between superintendent and the board. So that, that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. So getting down to the building level, when you say building level, you mean the school, 
right? An individual yes, school? absolutely. Okay. I had to figure that out after <laughs> we were going back and forth in notes for a while because that's a little bit of education speak. So building yes. level equals, and we're talking about a school. So yes. I think that this is now where parents are more familiar than some of the things that we've been talking about yes. already. But I, but I hope that parents listening can see how much goes on before we get down to the school mm-hmm. level. So you, yeah, as a parent, that's... are probably just thinking about, you know, I've got a principal and I've got my kids' teachers and you're thinking in those terms, but just imagine how much has happened, how much is required, how much gets filtered down before we even get to this building level. So when we get to the principal, the chief administrator in a given building, lots of hands have already been in the pot. What exactly then is the principal responsible for, specifically as it relates to what kids are taught and what is allowed culturally within a school, like, you know, having Pride Week or any of, you know, these other kinds of things that might happen, not necessarily in the classroom with what's being taught, but just culturally what's allowed. Okay. So the principal, think of that, that person, again, Dependent upon size of the school, uh, the building. Uh, so you could have a lead principal, building principal, and, and like I was an assistant in a very large building. Uh, so you, those principals are the chief operating officers of their building. Okay, so they handle the management of it, all the operations. They handle the safety and security. They handle staffing. They handle uh, communication to parents in the community. They handle supervision of events and activities and through the day and outside the the school day. Um, They're in charge of just about everything. And they answer to the administration at the board office or the superintendent directly. Okay, and then as a as a uh, a school district is larger, you have multiple buildings and the buildings are larger. You will have assistant principals or vice principals or, or associate principals that take on pieces of that responsibility. So they're distributive authority uh, to those people. The final thing is operations at, uh, when I say operations, all the activities that take place at the building level. When parents uh, have concerns or issues, again, the buck should stop at the lead principal or the assistant principal's uh, desk. Uh, So if it cannot be solved uh, via the teacher, the classroom, a counselor, uh, a nurse, uh, other support uh, services, then that buck stops at the principal or the assistant principal's office. They handle all things uh, dealing with the building at the building level. And and just to, to clarify, when you say operations, uh, when I hear operations, I'm thinking of, you know, in a normal corporate sense, like operations would involve, you know, how the air conditioning is functioning and, and you know, right. those kinds of things like the safety of the building. But it, it sounds like when you're saying operations, you're saying that yeah. would include the things like, you know, Pride Week and, and the, the yes. types of events that go on at a school, what's allowed at the school, like the cultural things. So is, is that yes. correct? I want to translate between what we're, we're talking yeah, about. It, it yeah. is the principal who decides what culturally is allowed to happen in the school. Is that correct? Yes. So um, that could be that could be a, com- a mixed decision making there. So it depends on the district. Um, okay. Some buildings have more autonomy and principles based on their experience, their force of personality, the autonomy that's been given there traditionally will have a wide range of autonomy to pursue certain priorities. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, things that go on politically, ideologically, things that are beyond the scope of regular academics, regular uh, academic and uh, emotional counseling, beyond uh, extracurricular activities, beyond that, anything else that is you know, student clubs and that type of thing. But if these things start to drift in, there, there's no reason that a principal should not be aware of that and have signed off on that. 
uh, or if it's a uh, district level decision that is filtered down to multiple buildings, um, that could have been administratively decided by people above the building principal or in smaller district, it's probably at the principal's level. So it just depends on size, the type of building, uh, grade levels involved, and then just the internal professional culture uh, and how mm-hmm. things are distributed. Uh, that that varies as well. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's really helpful because uh, again, it, there's there's so much complexity to this, and so much of it is going mm-hmm. to be determined, you know, in any parent's individual school setting. But I think this is helpful for getting people to think of, you know, if I have a problem, it's not necessarily my principal who has control over that because if right. it is something that has been mandated or recommended, whatever the case is, by the higher level at the whole district, the principal is responsible for executing that. Right. That's correct. So this is the, and but it might not be one of those things. You might see something of concern. And you might, you know, you might go to the principal and find out, no, this is not something that the school is required to have. This is not something that has come down from the district level, but this is something that the principal is saying, no, we're going to do this as a school. And then that is an appropriate conversation for that principal specifically. So if there's something you're unhappy with, you don't necessarily know off the top of your head just by thinking about it, whether this is something coming down from the district or the principal. Is that accurate? That is accurate. I, I want to give a caveat to this. Remember, these people are human beings and they have... They themselves, uh, whether they have them explicit or implicit ideologies and priorities and values. So yes, they've been trained. Yes, they have credentials. Yes, they have experiences and all of that, but they're individual human beings. And so we're all biased (laughs) and we all have things that we um, like and we think is important and we think should be a priority in our school. And that can come into conflict with the community and with individual parents, particularly in the sphere of education, I'll just say it, more conservative, and I'm talking theological before political, uh, parents and students many times feel marginalized because in the educational space, it leans not only left, center left, and sometimes way left politically, but ideologically. And that's very consistent from my experiences in the Midwest, and you live out in California, and and others that we've talked to that are friends and colleagues in, in, in our in our in our um, spaces uh, and people that I know that that is very common that um, some of the initiatives and programming can take a slant or can go a direction based on leadership and I say leadership principals administration uh, what they think is valuable and important and they're given latitude to do that so when you go in as a parent it's important to ask. Is this a district directive initiative program, number one? The second thing is, as okay, if it is, then what latitude were you given to execute that, you know, to, to, to do that at your building level? And three, when parents have concerns, what are the options for students and parents if they have concerns or issues with these particular programs, initiatives, and, and other things that might uh, cause us a little consternation? So that, that's just keep that in mind. Yeah, no, that is that is so great. And um, I, I think that should encourage every parent that if you have concerns, don't storm into the principal's office thinking that <laughs> the principal has the, that this was his or her personal wish to happen. Uh, ask questions, you know, just as yes, we, we talk about yes. on this podcast, like learn to ask good questions. Well, this is the same thing, you know, r- regardless of of who that principal is, go in and ask questions, express your concern and and, and ask, you know, where where is it coming from? And you, you gave some great language to it um, right there. So very, very 
helpful. Well, let, let's go on down to the classroom level now. This sure. is this is what parents see the most, right? We, we right. think about this. This is where during COVID, when everyone went online, people started seeing, oh my goodness, my kids are being taught all these things. This is crazy. It's like it, it all kind of bubbled up to the surface. And so parents are going to just naturally, I think, be very concerned about things at the teacher level. But as I keep emphasizing here, think about how much happens before the teacher level. Now we're right. just getting down to the individual who is in the classroom every day. It's not to say that person's not important. They're very important. We're going to talk in detail about that. But I just want to emphasize to people how much more there is to it. So again, for that person who's like, oh, but we've had all Christian teachers or we've had wonderful teachers. It, it's so much bigger mm-hmm. than that. And mm-hmm. so that's why we're doing this. So with that in mind, what does the typical teacher's classroom authority and autonomy look like in relationship to accountability to the principal? It's a mix. So again, we keep saying the word varied. You have to you know, look state by state, district by district. But the basics are that you got to start. We already talked about the federal and state and then, of course, policies at the local level. So there's going to be some governance over teachers, particularly with curriculum. OK, uh, that could you know, obviously the larger part is uh, curricula and the models and, the, and based on the standards that that are um, that are in a particular state. Those could be revised periodically. There's curriculum models that are um, that are supported and, uh, and and voted on by the State Board of Education and the tools and resources with those. So there are some things that the, the teacher doesn't necessarily have a ton of autonomy on. Because, it, because it's pretty top-heavy state-wise with standards-based education, with curriculum models, sequencing, uh, and also, um, you know, a lot of different tools that are used in a variety of states are very similar. Now, that being said, um, even at the local level, some districts are more strict than others. Departments may have very prescribed and rigid um, uh, curricula. Uh, four different uh, courses, particularly the core courses. When we say the core courses, math, science, social studies, ELA, or English. And so department chairs wield a lot of power. Uh, there might be a culture where they've done things a certain way. So new teachers or teachers that come in, maybe partial, you know, people have had some veteran uh, experiences. They have to conform to how things are taught, done at their particular school. So that's all in play. The part that teachers have autonomy is the methodology. So the instructional methods that they use in the classroom, um, beyond most most states, and and our my state in particular, uh, they have state testing, uh, a variety of them throughout the year, and so the the standards based curricula that is approved by the state board of education, and before that, the, you know obviously the legislature. Um, they uh, have to align in backwards planning those from those state tests through the state standards to their design of their curriculum. And so what they're going to teach, when they're going to teach it, what's the sequence of it, what's the pace of it. And so they have to make all those decisions. The part that the teacher makes the decision is, it can be, for example, it can be uh, what resources they use for a project, the methods they do to impart topics and different content, um, book selections for an ELA or English class. They might have a library that's been approved by the Board of Education and they can select things. There might be at the ninth grade level a certain one or two books that all ninth grade teachers teach, but then there are a couple that the teacher can select. 
at the math level. There are resources that the district probably purchases and uses. A common one's called Desmos, which maybe some people know what that is, but they might use that platform. But uh, the teacher doesn't have to. Uh, and so they have some autonomy to use a variety of platforms to teach math or to teach science. So the autonomy comes in the instructional methodology. And they have some latitude in not necessarily the sequencing, but maybe the pace and then the resources they use. That's where the autonomy comes in. And I'm going to give you a little bit of secret. This is the, the secret um, sauce here. As an administrator, we're in charge of knowing what they're teaching when they're teaching, and how they're teaching. Obviously, that's a part of the evaluation process. Here's the dirty little secret. I don't know for sure. 19 years I was in buildings. Day to day, I think they're teaching what they're supposed to be doing. I trust them. I know them. I've developed relationships with them. They're credentialed. They, many of them have master's degrees. Um, they've taken professional development. They've done all the bells and whistles. But day to day, here's the little dirty little secret administrators are in and out of classroom to a level. Obviously, they're dealing with other operational issues. Do I know exactly what each teacher is doing every day, how they're imparting instruction, how they're interacting with kids, how they're assessing it at their classroom level? I do not. That that is such a good point. I, I'm really glad that you that you brought that up because this is where things might look fine to a parent, you know, at yes. the, the district level. We live in, you know, people will say, I'm in a Bible belt state, you know, things haven't gotten crazy. <laughs> We're not California yet. I love our, our district, mm -hmm. everything's fine. We've got it, you know, the principal goes to my church and but yet you don't always know exactly what's going on in the classroom. And so this is part of, and we're, we're going to get to some practical, um, some tips at the end of the episode in terms of how do you find out what's going on in the classroom? So parents, we are going to come back to that for sure. We're still kind of working through the structure here, um, but that is, that is so important to know. And you, and we're also going to talk about content and curriculum a lot more. Um, I just want to wrap up this section on teachers. You know, you mentioned like the, 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 the teacher's latitude with execution in the classroom, and that's really kind yes. of what they're responsible Right. for. So that should tell parents that if there is content of concern that the state wants taught, like this is how they're going to do it. And it's going to come down and it's, the policy is going to be there through the, the district and the principal is going to execute that. So the teacher must execute that when it's filtered all the way down, right. that that should tell parents that the teacher only has so much room to move on this. Right. Um, so the, the teacher also goes through, I know you mentioned some ongoing training and development related to that execution, how they're going to teach it in the class. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about just briefly, um, because I, I know we have a lot to cover, but just briefly, like what kind of ongoing professional development do teachers do? Because that does affect their execution of the material in the class. And this is a place where there are some very different worldviews that are being filtered into teachers and in, in what they know and how they implement things. So I just I want to make it clear to people just because we're saying, well, teachers only, quote unquote, execute. Uh, mm -hmm. It's actually in the execution that a lot of problems are arising today. So right. can you can you explain that? Yeah. So let me go backwards. Like, again, we're, none of us are operating in a vacuum and we're all human beings. None of us are robots and we're perfectly executing in a neutral fashion content. We all know that's not correct. So let me go backwards a little bit. Teacher preparation. So most teachers in your public schools have gone to public universities or colleges where they have teacher preparation. Those have varying degrees of quality. Um, the issues that you see arise where you a lot of the concerns that a lot of Christian parents have because of the liberal arts training that goes along with most uh, preparatory uh, colleges for teacher education, the social sciences, which we know are just rife 
with left-leaning ideology and theology, let alone politics. Uh, that's the training. That even, I may I dare say, in some Christian colleges and universities, uh, while you may have a very conservative school of religion and you may have very conservative environment, the social sciences and the teacher preparation methodology tends to be, again, ideologically leaning to the left. And so even the very best case scenario of a Christian kid that went to a Christian private school, that went to a Christian college in a good family, goes into teacher preparation, and there's going to be some influence from the culture on teaching methodology. Because as you said in the previous method, most of the Christian schools, they follow a secular model, a traditional model of teaching. Well, guess what their preparation was? It's a traditional model. So you don't know at what level biblical worldview was integrated into that, particularly in the social sciences preparation of liberal. Then when you get into your, uh, into your first job, uh, you have to do programs of orientation and uh, preliminary programs your first, second, or third year to get your permit, you know, to get your five-year license or three-year license or seven-year license, okay? So that involves professional development. That involves local professional development. That involves state-run uh, young teacher preparation. You know, we call it in Ohio RESA. And so all of that is traditional preparation with traditional ideology, with traditional methodology, with the traditional instructional philosophy. And so even the best case scenario, you're swimming in the waters of the secular culture of traditional preparation. Then you get into the teacher and what goes on in the local district. It's a mix. Some teachers go and they, most teachers go and get their master's. Okay. Some get it in their content areas. Some get it in leadership. Some get it in administration. Some get it in counseling. Some get it in special education and so on. So as you go further, again, you're swimming in the waters of your, of your secular education preparation, whether it be at the undergrad or graduate level. It's absolutely influential. And then your local level is influenced by the content creators, the influencers, and the providers of professional development, whether it be online, in-person professional development, all the way through. And they come from the universities, come from third parties. And again, the majority of them are centered left, ideologically, philosophically, secularly. And then the final piece I will say is that most teachers, the professional literature that they're reading, including what I did, I mean, I can say this with absolute honesty. I was tracking uh, for a friend of ours, 500 educational articles that I read, and not one of them was sensitive to what you would consider conservative, ideological, philosophical parents, students, and ideals uh, that we would value. They were focused on other things, and they were critical of those. F over 500 professional articles at the administrative and the board or uh, superintendency level or at the, the graduate level, and that just should show you uh, the water's tainted just a tad. Yeah, absolutely. There's a a very interesting book that I read this summer. Um, I think it's a pretty new book. It's called The Marxification of Education by James Lindsay. And he Somebody, tracks yeah. basically how um, how Paulo Freire, I hope I'm saying his name yes. right, but mm -hmm. he is mm -hmm. this, this educator who is basing, you know, everything that I've talked about on the podcast and hopefully a lot of people are familiar with now, critical theory, how that is applied to pedagogy through, through the methods yes. of teaching in the entire educational system. And he just shows through the United States how 
this is working its way into everything. And that absolutely is about the execution and the methodology. So when we're talking about what's happening in the classroom, if you have teachers who are dominantly trained, like you're saying, in a secular education or even in a Christian school, but still using these secular models of education, you're going to have that kind of influence. And, you're, and then when you continue to go through the, the standards that you're, you're talking about to get additional certifications and training, and that's also telling you, well, this is how you teach. This is how you right. execute this. You're going to see that come through in the classroom. The whole system is sort of rigged this way. So I'll Absolutely. put a link to that in the show notes for those who, who want to take a look at that. And that kind of brings us full circle on, on the teachers. And I, and I want to get deeper into the content and methodology, but I can't help but ask this question. If, if the teachers are then evaluated according to how well they're executing and the standards against which they're executing are, you know, did I teach this Marxist way of thinking, which it ultimately is, then doesn't that mean that in order to succeed in the class, if those are the standards that you're being evaluated against, that you're going to have basically trouble succeeding in your job if you're not willing to teach Mm. in the way that you're being evaluated on? Absolutely. I can't tell you, particularly in the last five years, just right before COVID and then after COVID, where I mentored informally or formally administrators, Christian administrators, uh, Christian teachers, and behind closed doors, we got felt comfortable enough, had a good enough relationship. Many times I was their evaluator. Sometimes I was not. And, and both in my district and outside of my district, whether it be teachers I ran it, you know, that I had friendships with with church or other uh, parts of my life. And they absolutely had this in the forefront of their minds. They were being asked in science, in social studies, in ELA, English, in the health uh, they were being asked to compromise and they were conflicted. And many of them were very young. They had young families that were just getting started out. They were scared to death on what to say, do. Uh, like, for example, if I wasn't the supervisor and they, uh, the person that was their supervisor, even if they were a nice person, but they may not be have the same worldview, may not have the same proclivities on some of these issues or uh, perspectives. They were worried that if they brought these things up early on in a career, it's going to impact their evaluation. And you mentioned it earlier, these ideas, these values, whether it be uh, critical theory, uh, social justice, revisionist and in, in social studies, uh, revisionist ideas in social studies, evolution, you know, macro evolution, things like that, that are, they're inundated into uh, both the administrator and the teacher evaluations, let alone the counseling. Uh, uh, the counselors have some of the toughest because of e- uh, SEL curricula and some of those, uh, some of their professional standards are based on that. And so we forget about the counselors who engage our kids in some of the most vulnerable situations, but they're inundated with professional standards and evaluative uh, tools that reflect this ideological, left ideological, philosophical, uh, secular structure that most professionals until recently have not thought about deeply. They have no tools or ideas on a comprehensive level to, to you know what to do about it. They they are starting to seek some help from some folks, but then they're ultimately scared to death, particularly because they're early on in their careers. Um, the final thing I'll say to that is, and, and and this is not damning to any person or or condemning of any person, but you know I'm a Christian. Uh, my eyes were blinded for a while. I wasn't paying attention until a few years back 
But many Christians are duped right now because they've been, whatever metaphor you want to use, they're in the boat, rowing the boat, they're in the water, swimming in the waters, whatever metaphorical language you want to use. They've been so, so they've been so long in the echo chamber and so long doing things that they're doing. They compartmentalize faith and their convictions outside the school, and they forget to apply those inside the school. And they're not ideologues. They're not like doing it facetiously. They just have not put the pieces together until recently, COVID, post-COVID, and then all the things exploded that uh, parents are having issues with. And they're suddenly going, goodness, I've never thought about these things at a deep level. Wow, maybe I am compartmentalizing. And what do I do about this? And who do I talk to? And how do we push back? And what are my recourse? So that's some things that are absolutely happening in most schools. um, And teachers just either aren't talking about it because they're scared, or if they're talking about it, they're talking in safe environments, and they don't really have the methods or the tools to do something about it because everything is (laughs) skewed the other direction. Yeah, that, this is such an important point. I know uh, we're going to do a second part of this episode where we just go through the dozens of questions that people had for you on Facebook. And I know that this came up a few times from people who are currently teaching in public schools. You know, how at what point do I get out? It's kind of the question. So right, we are right. going to address that when we get to the Q&A. But I think that the hardest part about this is, well, number one, that like you said, you're 100% right. That a lot of times we're, we've been so blinded as Christians that we haven't kept up with like just how different we're supposed to be versus the culture, right? right? Um, something that I'm talking about all the time. We've got to get more clarity there. But the difficult part of this is that even if you get that clarity and you're like, okay, I understand what's going on here, you could understand it perfectly well and have very little power to do anything. Because if you're in a district, let's say you're a principal out of school and you're a Christian, but you're in a district that's heavy handed from the top down, it sounds like. And if you're in a state that's fundamentally very different and it's predominant views than what where you are. If all that's coming down from the top, even if you have perfect clarity, you're not necessarily in a position where you're going to have the power to change much that's right. because this is, you're an executor. That's that- absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. And the, the one thing that there are starting to, there's starting to be some organizations, some that we know and some that are more, um, that are more known uh, and then others that are obscure that are starting to target Christians in the public schools to resource them, help them, uh, give them content, make sure they know their rights, um, and, and give them uh, tools to deal with these things because it is becoming more prevalent that Christians are paying attention. And many Christians, uh, they're not retiring like, like I have recently or semi-retired. Uh, they're staying and they feel like it's a mission field or that this is where their calling is. They're blooming where they're planning, but it's becoming so difficult because of the potential compromise that they don't have the tools, resources, or avenues of how to approach it. And they don't have the experience. And to be quite frank, Christian educators in general, we just don't have the experiences because um, the pushback, I guess, the light persecution based on these ideologies, we've not really had to face uh, until rather recently. Yeah. And I want to give uh, listeners links to some of those resources that you're mentioning, but instead of having you just list them off here, I'll ask you to follow up after the episode and send me some of those links. And so we will put together something um, that will go into the show notes for this. And so if you're wondering about those, we, we will resource you on that. 
Um, so, okay, so we've kind of taken a long time here already t- just going through the structure. So the federal, the state, the local, the building level, all the way down to the teachers. And we've talked about how all those levels impact things. I want to talk more about the curriculum specifically, because I do think that this is where a lot of parents kind of hyper focus. Um, and, and there's, there's good reason to focus on the curriculum, especially when that's what you see, you know, you see books, textbooks coming home, for example, so that you see that, uh, right in front of you. Um, but I want to give parents some, understanding of how that curriculum is ultimately determined. And I I found a really good example, I think, of a a case study on why it's not just about the curriculum Mm -hmm. that parents uh, need to be concerned about or take a look at. So this was a case study that was actually done in the magazine, The National Review. And what Mm -hmm. they did is they looked at starting with the state learning standards. So what we were talking about earlier in the episode, if you remember, the state kind of determines this is the benchmark, this is what the kids in the state need to learn. And things are going to flow from that. So what they did is they looked at how the state learning standards in the state of Rhode Island ultimately trickled down to what was being taught in the classroom and just how biased it was. So I'm going to read sort of a lengthy little excerpt from this magazine article. So I'll tell you when the end of the quote is done. But this is a quote from the National Review based on their analysis. Quote, If you take a quick, superficial look at the content sections of Rhode Island's social studies standards, things might seem relatively normal. Many of the usual topics in U.S. history, for example, are present in the standards. The trick is that every topic must be taught in line with the new anchor standards, which demand radical leftist advocacy. So, for example, the anchor standard on power tells teachers to, quote, argue how power can be distributed and used to create a more equitable society for communities and individuals based on their intersectional identities. So this anchor standard on power is then cross-referenced in the various content units, for example, in the U.S. History Unit on, quote, the new right and the presidencies of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. In other words, the standards effectively command Rhode Island's teachers to present Reagan's presidency by showing how an identity-based equity-focused leftist coalition might have reversed his policies. Almost all of Rhode Island's anchor standards are about equity, the equality of result, and the use of identity, power, and resistance to achieve it. Not a single episode of history can be taught outside the dictates of the anchor standards, that is, without leftist advocacy, end quote. So I was kind of fascinated by this because this sounds like a very good example of how something might sound very basic in the standards that are going to come down through the curriculum, like we're going to learn about George Washington and his role as the first American president. But that's not all you have to learn about. So yes, go learn about the state learning standards and look at the textbook that your kids are using, but understand that there's more to it. Because Rhode Island, as one of these examples, has this whole separate set of standards related to the execution, the way in which the teachers are going to present this material. And that's where the problems come in. So I went to read the Rhode Island anchor standards, as they call them. And I, Andy, I couldn't even believe it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they read like they are straight out of a manual for critical theory. And what's so interesting about this is that even if a parent were to know to search out learning standards in the first place, they wouldn't spot all this because they wouldn't know that there are separate standards for how you execute it. So states can hide this stuff in the methodological standards that parents don't even know to look for. And if you followed it all the way through from kindergarten through 12th grade, it would show how your kids are learning a very, very specific view of human history. 
through the lens of this leftist ideology. So I just talked a whole lot with that example, but Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your response to that. Do you, anything that you want to comment on, but also I'm just curious, do you think it's intentional that states try to keep more controversial standards off the radar of parents? Absolutely. Because, well, you've seen what's happened recently in a variety of places in the nation where uh, DEI or D, you know, DI or JEDI, you know, social justice, critical theory. And there was this jockeying back and forth and high level pressure put on boards and superintendents. And that's just one area, um, you know, maybe a backwater issue, which should not be, would, would be some of the things in, in sciences. And of course, uh, we know the ELA and the provocative nature of some of the books that are in our our school libraries have become a major issue. And that's that's hit a lot of different news outlets and as well as YouTube. And you can watch a lot of those interactions with with uh, parents, community members and boards. And it's um, it's quite disturbing. I will say this. This trend began, you know, mid 2000s, around 2008, 9 and 10 with Common Core. Um, and there was other initiatives with it. So. What that was, and if people don't maybe remember that, it was just a movement. It was an initiative that was really pushed by a governor's commission. And I remember Jeb Bush was a part of that. Uh, he, was kind of a, he was kind of the Florida governor that was kind of the standard bearer for that. And the whole goal was to try to deal with the standardization of outcomes, of what kids are learning. You know, what, what are they supposed to learn? What are they actually learning? And are they ready for post-secondary uh, and into being a productive citizen, go to college, go to the military, go to the, their careers. And so there was an attempt to standardize that and make and give common curricula based on the core areas, like we talked about, math, science, social studies, ELA, and so English language. And so that was the initiative. It's pretty simple. They wanted to standardize it, standardize it across all the United States because each state had the autonomy to, at that point, to dictate their standards per state, you know, that that uh, dictated curricula. Well, uh, they called it Common Core. Uh, it's now somewhat of a dirty word now to a lot of states and a lot of different groups. So you just mentioned anchor standards. That's euphemistic. That just means Common Core. Okay, so mm-hmm. Rhode Island, if you go to a variety of different websites, you can see, do they still have adopted standards, you know, that come out of Common Core? They just change the wording, like we know, the the amalgamation of, of language. So a lot of states have adopted Common Core or variations of it. Some t- states have, re- have adopted it and rescinded it or just outright rejected it or modified it. Either way, it was a movement to centralize top-heavy from state governments and federal influence. Well, I'll just end with this without getting too far in the weeds. Okay, so if Common Core is a governance commission and those governors are the chief executors of their states and each state has a variety of different political leanings based on which administration, the legislatures, but a majority of these were going to be center, center left ideology, philosophically. Well, the problem is, is when you have this being pushed at the state and the federal level and everybody's working together towards that and it's centralized, parents say, wait a second, most of the problems need to be handled at the local level. Most of the, I want to have autonomy over what my kid's being taught. I want to have a say. I want to be there to be choices. And of course, 
COVID and post-COVID, that's only accentuated choice and alternative education options and a variety of different things with that. And so people have pushed back against that because it's a one-size-fits-all. And the results that were promised through eventually it led to testing, and a lot of money was exchanged with testing uh, companies and things like that, is they promised a lot of things with outcomes that people were going to standardize what was learned and the outcomes ultimately would be better. Well, more than 10 years later, there's no appreciable evidence that this has helped or worked. In fact, I would say most people intuitively would say, listen, the problems with education aren't necessarily the standards. They can be. There's a lot of issues in society, a lot of issues with communities, a lot of issues with families that are impacting if a a child learns, how they learn, what they learn, at what pace they learn, and then what they're prepared for post-secondary. So I think it's trying to put all your eggs in one basket around standards, centralizing it, centralizing the power and the authority. And then the final piece in here, whose values... Whose, whose priorities get emphasized? Well, we all know in the education sphere, it's going to lean left philosophically, ideologically, secularly, traditionally. And uh, that's not going to be good for your more conservative families and more conservative communities, your uh, folks that tend to want more local control, less government involvement, and they want great influence and choice in their students' educational journey. And, and so Common Core, it sounds like it included both learning standards about specific types of content, like in math, you know, that a child yes. can count from one to 10 or something in early childhood, but also it included standards for execution or the way in which it's taught, like the anchor standards, as Rhode Island calls it. So did Common Absolutely. Core then include both of those pieces? Yes. And then you got to add okay. testing onto that too, because that's okay. that what's create the outcome. And they promised the goods and they didn't deliver the goods. And most people... I think that we're well, like the reasonable people realize you can't try to fit all states, all situations, all districts, all families, all kids into a one size fits all and get promise those types of results and get those because it's so varied, so complex, the issues in education, because they reflect society and the issues in society. That That is so helpful because, you know, with the whole Common Core thing, I remember when we were looking for schools for my kids when they were younger and we were going to some different Christian private schools and the question would come up, you know, how are you guys handling Common Core? And I had no idea at the time, right. you know, what we we're even talking about. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was basically said by the administrators who were leading these meetings at the schools that we went to, oh, people are making a big deal out of Common Core, but really it's just trying to have some standardization across all schools nationally of what kids are learning so that we're sure everyone learning that two plus two equals four. It was, it was kind of um, in a reductionist way kind of put to us mm-hmm. like that. And at the time I thought, well, that makes sense. There should be, you know, the educational experts should be able to determine what kids right, need right. to learn in terms of a scope and sequence at different points. But when you realize the uh, everything that can be put into it, as you so eloquently just articulated in terms of the, the bias and the view, it, it's impossible to escape that. Maybe if you're talking about two plus two equals four, that's one thing. But when you start talking about history and English and what kids are expected to uh, analyze and and how they're Mm -hmm. supposed to, uh, the view that they're supposed to put on top of different things, then you start to see, oh, this is so much more. Because the more it's centralized, the more ability 
that the government's going to have to determine what kids are learning. And usually that takes away from the, the power or always it takes away from the power in the local district, which is extremely concerning as a parent. So I think you get concerned when you realize what that power leads to and that it's not just about two plus two equals four. It's about how kids right. see everything in their well, reality. If, if, if you remember early in our conversation, I'll make a small point. Remember we talked about seven to 11% of the monies from the federal, you know, came yes. from the federal government. Common Core had tied monies to it and that those monies mm. were attached to those people that adopted Common Core and still do. Wow. So that's a political football as well. And so the people that are absolutely on board with Common Core are, are the folks that are lobbying for those particular grants and those different types of uh, monies coming from the federal government going and filtering to the ones that are playing ball, which are those that adopt Common Core. And then, of course, guess who gets to set the priorities and values and change and update and adopt new standards and things? It's the folks that are playing ball again with the Common Core folks. That that is so good, so so very helpful. It, it, it this is so interesting to me. Even all the notes that you've sent me, like this is making all the light bulbs go off of how this all fits together. And, and you sent something um, that when we were talking about this over email, um, just kind of bullet pointing from a, a group called Educational Research Analysts, and mm -hmm. they look at textbooks basically. And mm -hmm. um, it, and this it's just a list of things where they have detected bias. And so I want to read these to parents because I want to just put in. Your your head all the different ways that your kids are getting an education from a one-sided perspective in many cases. And what they said is uh, that many textbooks seek to change students' beliefs about society rather than merely give factual knowledge, basic skills, and cultural heritage. And this group says that there are several indicators of the bias toward liberal social change. And here are some of the ones that they mentioned. So I'm just going to read you this list of bullet points that they've detected through all of their analysis of textbooks. This is just a partial list. So I'm just giving you examples. Examples. Presenting life as a problem in sociology to be solved by government bureaucrats and social science experts. Treating all moral questions as open, relative, and debatable. Portraying total equality as an absolute value. Consistently one-sided presentations of current political controversies. The inevitability of change and the cliche that all change is good. The inevitability of individual and community dependence on government in all aspects of life. Society's collective guilt for human problems. Evolution taught as fact. Stories of violence and immorality presented as common experiences of the typical person. Mm. Unfair portrayals of Christians and churchgoers as authoritarian, cruel, and intolerant. Portraying tolerance, meaning the absence of judgment, as the highest virtue. These are just a few examples, and, and these ideas are woven into nearly every subject. And it's certainly going to be worse in some states than others, but it's increasingly an issue everywhere where we see these. And I, I wish I could remember the example um, it, from the Marxification of Education book that, that I was talking about earlier. But I remember one of the things he was talking about was that even in math, you might think math, okay, that's going to be, you know, just a basic subject. We're not going to have this. But he was talking about how teachers are actually trained that you can use word problems in order to have a quote unquote culturally responsive education where you're getting kids to talk about social issues and social justice, even math. And it was an example 
example, and I, I'm totally butchering this example. I'm just going to give one that's analogous. But it, it was something like, you know, if you have a word problem and you have one person and, you know, this person perhaps has a Hispanic name and he is walking to school. And then you have another person who has maybe a more European name. And that person is taking a, uh, a car to school, is driving to mm-hmm. school. You know, if one person leaves at this time, the other person at this time, you know, at what point will they meet up? You know, these kinds of problems that we all had at, at, um, as mm-hmm. kids. Well, mm-hmm. teachers are taught not just to calculate this in some mathematical sense, but to say, why do you think that this person was actually able to take a car to school and this person had to walk to school? Do you think that's fair? Do you think Mm -hmm. that one person has a privilege in society? See how I just took a basic math problem and now I'm bringing in social issues and social justice in a Marxist lens. And I can tell you, having homeschooled for the last three years for middle school for my twins, I chose secular curricula for some of the subjects for various reasons. And uh, even in the math book that we chose, it was a McGraw-Hill basic book. You could see some of these things Mm -hmm. come through. It it was really eye-opening that Mm -hmm. even in the math book, you're going to see these kinds of examples. I don't know if you have anything in particular you want to comment on with that, but I just I I love that list that you sent because it's a very tangible list of the ways that bias creeps in, even in something like math. Yeah, and it, it, like you said, it's not a comprehensive; it's just a snippet. Yeah, I would I would say this: um, it's worse than this. <laughs> yeah. I, I I hate to bring the good news or the bad news or whatever it is, but it's worse than this. This is just a small. Here's where it's worse. Remember we talked about the preparation for teachers. Okay, right. so take this, and they get that for four years in undergrad, and there's social sciences, which is uh, is problematic at best. Um, and then they get all their professional development, all their preparation to get their, you know, their their three or four or three, five, seven year license, and then then re-upping that, their local preparation. And then the textbook companies, there's been a reduction in the amount of textbook companies. So there's not near as many textbook companies that were 30, 40, 50 years ago. So there is less choice. You have to really dig in and really search for uh, good textbooks that don't have this type of bias. And then most of these companies and most of these folks, they receive money, lobbying money, and you can trace the money back to some organizations, some people that are behind this, that absolutely lean left ideologically and philosophically, and they have influence, money, and and um, time, effort, and structure to these textbooks, companies in the development of these. Uh, sometimes these are coming out of folks that have expertise, but they're they're funded from universities and colleges. That they got their degrees, they got their PhDs, they got their um, their uh, they've got their credentials uh, from universities. They still work there, or they they work in that sphere. So that production of content. And those resources are going to reflect, again, the waters that they're swimming in. The final thing I would say to this is the professional development that we're, that you receive at the local level, whether it's generated by the local level or that's something beyond that that's either mandated by the state and has to be executed by the local or beyond, a lot of it, particularly in the social justice, DEI, DI, um, and a variety of other things with that, is inundated. That remember I mentioned earlier the educational service centers. Okay, mm-hmm. and they do they they contract out 
a lot of the professional development, particularly in small districts and medium-sized districts, they can't afford to do it themselves. They don't have enough people. So they'll contract out the services. Even large districts contract out services. Well, a lot of this stuff comes through them because they get grants or they get monies or the individual districts pay them money on a yearly basis because of a larger contract. And they trust them in these different uh, professional developments, and they lean on these issues heavily on the side that you're talking about that are completely contrary to a biblical worldview or a more conservative Western traditional point of view. And again, a lot of Christians, they're not putting it together. Many more now are starting to. They're conflicted. And then other people just seem like this is the way we do business. This is the echo chamber. This is the professional that we've always done. And it's good for kids. And I don't see anything wrong with it. So I don't run into a bunch of ideologues. I mostly run into folks that are just trying to do their job. They're trying to complete the course. They're trying to complete the professional development. They're doing what is normal for a teacher, an educator, an administrator to do. And they haven't thought deeply about it and the implications of it. That that's really true, and I and I think for any parents who may be listening to this, who are thinking, well, I'm glad my kids are in a you know a Christian private school right now. I want you all to be listening to this conversation closely because if your Christian school is using secular materials and not training teachers on how to bring in worldview discussions about the things that they encounter in the curricula, you're in the same position. Your kids might have a Christian teacher. They might pray before lunch. They might uh, teach you a Bible class separately, but like. I talked about in that second episode, if they're not trained on how to evaluate these worldview issues, how to identify differences versus a biblical worldview and the materials that they're using and how to talk about that with their students, and guess what? They're they're usually not, then your kids are absolutely getting a lot of the same thing. I know, you know, just for example, when I was looking at um, possible Christian schools for middle school, and I ended up homeschooling for those years, but I remember going into the classrooms and looking at the textbooks that were used for language arts, for example. And then I open up to unit one. And this is just a, you know, a standard, typical secular textbook. And unit one was all about the question, who am I? And it had a bunch of different texts that kids were going to reflect on who they are. Well, this is a huge worldview question. I mean, this is anthropology. It is the yep. basic yep. question yep. of human existence. Like, who are we as people? You know, are we just the product of blind, purposeless chance over billions of years? Or are we created by a loving God? Are we created by a deistic God who doesn't care what we're doing? I mean, all of the answers to those questions are going to have vast implications for answering the question, who am I? But yet this textbook is going to take us through, you know, various perspectives perspectives that, you know, people have on themselves going back to the authority of the self that I'm always talking about on here. And I just thought, wow, like this is, this is the epitome of the problem, even in Christian schools. How many teachers are thinking in those terms? Probably not a lot of them, even in the Christian school. They're probably just thinking, you know, here, here's my language arts book, and we're going to talk about different perspectives, not I need to talk about anthropology. And so I, I just, I throw that in there because I just want to get all parents thinking about this. And I'm going to encourage, even if you're not in public school, to listen to this episode. So I wanted to, to make sure to note that there's, there's so much more that we could go into with that. I, I hope that everything we've talked about here in terms of the structure of education it is starting to give you an understanding of all the different levels that are involved and how this is not a simple issue and how public education really does impact the overall nature of what your kids are learning for 12 plus years. Um, we, we could do so much more, like I said, but I, I 
I just want parents to kind of get this basic understanding so you can start to make some of these decisions. But that said, it's a really big question for people in terms of, okay, I don't have other choices. I see the problem. I understand we have all these different levels and there are so many things, I, I, but I want to do something. What do I do? And so, Andy, we're going to we're gonna stop today for this episode yep. and we're going to go on and maybe this is going to end up being three parts given where we are because <laughs> I know people like to listen to things in chunks. So maybe this is part one. We were going to just do two parts parts with the Q&A in another one. But why don't we plan to make a separate episode then as the the next one of what do you do? How do you, number one, monitor what's going on Mm -hmm. so that you even have the basic information from which to work? And then number two, how do you possibly advocate for change where you can? So would that be okay with you if we do a next episode on that? And then we'll tackle the Q&A in another one. Yeah, this is a lot to, you know, we're drinking out of a fire hose. And yes, you know, we I'm, are. I'm, I'm an insider. I've also been a parent of three kids. And I know I was an insider. I thought I was on top of things. And it's just a lot. You're running your lives. You've got a, you've got a job. You're, you know, you're a stay-at-home parent. You've got multiple jobs. You've got multiple children. And then to have to do analysis of curricula and models right. and resources, it's just absolutely overwhelming. But we know that, it, unfortunately, in this time and place uh, of where we are, we have to do our due diligence on some of the most critical decisions in bringing up our children. And I can tell you from experience that the parents and the families that are doing the hard work, they're sacrificing the time, they're getting the education, they're becoming familiar with some basic things. It's absolutely paying dividends for their kids short and long term. So hang in there. It is worth it. And we'll try to help that process in some manner. That's so encouraging. Thank you for that. It's a great way to end this episode. Thank you so much for your time today, Andy. I mean, this is this has just uh, been outstanding. I, I love everything you've said. I, I can't wait to get this out there and, and have parents hear what you, you have to say. So much valuable information today. So thank you so much for, for spending Absolutely. this time with us. Um, and thank you guys for listening. Please do share this with people you know. If you're a Christian and you're homeschooling, you're you're not off the hook. If you're a Christian parent in the community and you want to be salt and light, you should be involved. You should know what's going on with your public schools because not everyone has the opportunity to get out of the public schools, even if they wanted to. So I hope that this gives you some information that you can spring from. Like I said, this is a, a impactful, I think, also for Christian parents who have kids in private schools. No matter what your situation is, I think everyone needs this. So please take time to share this with others that you know who would find it valuable. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a minute to rate and review on your podcast player. Helps more people find out about the show. We will be back very soon. We will record the next episode. I know that I'm leaving you kind of uh, hanging here, but we will definitely get to the encouraging part of what you can do as a Christian parent if you are in a public school. Thanks so much for listening today, guys.